It's the third Sunday of Advent and uh, the season of anticipation, of longing, and I'm telling you what, it's like never before, I think everybody's feeling this longing, right? The world kind of feels like it's it's gone crazy a little bit. Culture feels like it's just, sometimes just feels like it's sick. Uh, You know, the news on on the interwebs feels a little pessimistic a lot of times, but I got a message of hope this morning. I got a message of hope because there's a rumor going around that there's a baby about to be born. Amen? Amen. So this morning I want to back up uh, from that uh, amazing moment in the manger that Jesus was born. Let's, let's back up, let's say, oh, about nine months. Nine months when a teenage girl, unmarried, a virgin, just living a nice little life in a nice little village, minding her own business, suddenly finds out that her life is about to be turned upside down and inside out, and nothing is ever going to be the same. Amen? So let's look at the world uh, of Mary just for a second here. At the time of the Christmas story, what was happening there around the the year uh, zero, um, that's a joke, Uh, the world is ruled by one of the Caesars. The world is ruled by one of the Caesars. The first Caesar was Julius Caesar, ruler of an empire, inventor of a delicious salad, and, uh, and then he passed, it's a stupid joke, I can't help it, I gotta say it almost every time. It is dumb, I'm sorry, I'm a dad. Uh, Julius Caesar passed down his rule to his adopted son, Augustus, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus comes to power in roughly 27 BC, and he rules all the way till 14 AD. So the Christmas story happens right in the middle of that, that time in history when the whole world, the known Western world at least, is ruled by Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, uh, he believed that his father Julius was God who had ascended into heaven. And uh, he referred to himself as, surprise, the Son of God. They sang hymns to Augustus as the Son of God. They worshiped him. They even used the term the incarnate Son of God in the flesh, ruling on earth. Caesar Augustus had his own high priests, um, and, and you would offer incense to Caesar, and through his priests, they believed if you did this, you would receive forgiveness of your sins. Isn't that something? And you would have all of your guilt washed away. And this is all straight from the history books at the public library and, and Wikipedia, which never lies, I'm sure. Um, you, can, you can read it all yourself. So Augustus saw himself as like this divine mediator between heaven and earth. He was there to reunite heaven and earth. And one of the phrases he made popular during his reign might sound a little familiar, was there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Caesar Augustus. Another very popular phrase we talked about last month in our series that everyone would say back and forth is kind of a hello is Caesar is Lord. And you would say, yes, Caesar is Lord and go about your day. And they believed that Caesar was bringing peace to all of humanity, creating this sort of heaven on earth. And there were prophecies about him. And so we have to get our minds around the fact that in this moment, in this Christmas story moment, the whole Western world is united from England to India under this empire. It's ruled by the Roman Empire. And that Roman Empire is ruled by one man, Caesar Augustus. You would pay tribute. Uh, out of your income, you know, you just you go to work every day, and out of that, you pay tribute to Caesar Augustus. His armies would come, and they would slaughter anybody who got in their way. There were records of, uh, of one of his generals, Cassius, 
enslaved 30,000 Jews who refused to say Caesar is Lord. When the Roman Empire made its way into your village, if you resisted, they crucified you, or they would just slaughter you, and the rest of you would become slaves in your village. If you said yes, well, if things worked out better for you, you'd become part of the Roman Empire, but then you would begin paying taxes, and your taxes would go to Caesar so that he could pay more troops so he could conquer more of the world. One time there was a rebellion uh, among a group of people who said, uh, no way, no, we're, Caesar, Caesar isn't going to rule us, we're not going to pay our taxes. And the town of Sepphoris uh, said that the Roman general varies. He crucified 3,000 people who resisted. The Romans invented this form of torture uh, called crucifixion, they, and it was really reserved for thieves, murderers, and those who wouldn't bow. So this is the Caesar's definition of peace and order. Now, when Caesar would conquer a nation, let's say, uh, you know, he, he, he's based in Rome, today Italy, and the question is, he would conquer nations sometimes one, two, three thousand miles away, and so the question is, how did he keep those people in line? Um, well, what he would do is find a local king there who would rule on his behalf. And so, as we know uh, from the Scriptures, in the, in the land of Israel, at the time of the Christmas story, Caesar found himself a little puppet king named Herod. There's Herod, and Herod is an absolutely paranoid psychopath who slaughtered everybody in his path. Um, you're starting to sense this trend, right? It said that Herod killed several of his kids. He had one of his sons drowned in the family pool because he was suspicious that that son was trying to take over his kingdom. One of his wives, he had her executed. At one point, he had the, a disagreement with the religious leaders of the country, so he just had them all slaughtered. When he neared the end of his life, here's how just total nut job uh, Herod is. When he neared the end of his life, he was ill. And so he, had the, he filled the stadium with the most influential, beloved Jews in Israel. And he told his guards, barricade the doors, and when I die, the moment I die, slaughter everybody in the stadium. So it'll be guaranteed that at my death, there is weeping and mourning. That's Herod. And basically, it was Herod's job to keep Caesar happy. And as long as uh, Herod did what Caesar wanted, he got to maintain control of Israel. So if you put yourself in the ancient world of the time of the Christmas story, you have Caesar rules the world. Caesar's declared himself Lord, and if you don't bow down to Caesar, you die. Caesar's installed in Israel a man named Herod, and if you don't bow down to Herod, you die. So the Christmas story occurs here in this year zero with Caesar Augustus ruling the world, Herod in charge of Israel, and both of them just slaughtering anybody who defies them. Added to this demand for worship was uh, both King Herod and Caesar uh, charged you huge taxes because they had to keep up these armies that we talked about so they could build more things and conquer more people. And so in the land of Israel at this time, it said that uh, people were often being taxed up to 80 and 90 percent of their income. So imagine you're just a simple family. Uh, they're in that Palestine region. Uh, you're a Jewish family. You've, you've lived there for generations and generations. This is the promised land uh, that you've had for a thousand years. 
and uh, you're working, uh, you have your land, but you're, you're farming this one piece of land, and now you're getting taxed 60%, 70%, 80%, 90%, 90% what, what is going to end up happening. Eventually, you've got to sell the land. You can't hold on to it. You go bankrupt. And so eventually, you surrender the family land, so there's this huge sense of shame at having to give up family land. And, and now you're working as a laborer, on some rich Roman dude's land that used to be your land, just trying to feed your family. So what was happening is, is basically everybody's going bankrupt, barely surviving, the culture is crumbling, and everything seems to be falling apart. This is, this is a happy message, isn't it? Now, just a, a little bit more of this, because what's fascinating is if you read the, the, cult, uh, the literature from this time period, uh, the Jews had always believed that they were somehow God's people. And so what really kicked in during this time was this profound sense of despair you read in the literature. Uh, like Caesar, is he always going to rule? Is Caesar always going to be ruled? Is Herod always going to be on this throne? Because they just steal and they kill and they destroy. And we have less and less and less and the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Those of us who are faithful, we're trying to be faithful to God, and he just seems to get, the, any possibility of hope just seems to be getting further and further away. Now, many of the Jewish people develop this profound sense of even doubt, like, God, if you're so good, why is Herod still on the throne? This, this psycho, why is he still on the throne? God, if you're so good, then why is Caesar from Rome claiming to be God and he's getting away with it? We might say, God, if you're so good, why cancer? If you're so good, why divorce? So their questions were the questions of human history. God, if you're so good, I've tried to do the right thing. Why is this happening to me? So we can blur the lines. It's easy to blur the lines from the Christmas story to our story as our this Advent season that we're in echoes their Advent season. They were in an Advent season. They didn't realize it, but they were in the very first Advent season, the waiting. They're waiting for the coming of the Messiah, and it echoes our waiting. And maybe you're sitting there thinking the same thing, like, how long is this going to go on, God? If you're good, why do you allow stuff like this? Why do you, where are you? Where are you? There's this great line from the book of Luke. I want to show it to you. I think it summarizes this moment so beautifully. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, and he was looking forward to the consolation of Israel. So what we want to do so this Christmas season, I think it's so important for us as Christians to enter into the Christmas story, not just not just kind of let it pass by, not just enjoy the twinkling lights, which I love, I love that part too, and not just drive by one more nativity scene, but to actually enter into the real Christmas story. It's entering into the story of a whole nation crying out, people who were just like us, they were waiting, and they're saying, how long is Caesar going to rule? How long is Herod going to be on this throne? How long? How long, God, is everything going to feel like it's fallen apart? Where are you? That's why I just, I love this, this little detail about Simeon. He's not some great hero. He's not a great leader. We don't really learn much else about him. He's just waiting. We just hear he's just a righteous guy 
who's waiting. He's, he, Simeon for us is the representative of a whole nation of people who are waiting on the promises of God. And today, today you might be here and, and you just need to take a moment, each of us, to, to pause and reflect on this. Where do you find yourself in this story Do you find yourself relating to this at all? Do you find yourself relating to the people of Israel in that moment? Maybe for you it's a personal thing, like like a relationship that's just, it's agonizing. Or something going on with your kids that's breaking your heart. Or something with a parent. Maybe you're taking care of a parent or something. Or it's a diagnosis from the doctor or it's some kind of financial thing where you're like, oh, I know this story. I know what that feels like. And maybe for you it's just looking around at the world all around us, just looking at other things happening, at the brokenness and all the suffering and saying, God, what about this? What about this? Because see, Advent is a season that is all about the waiting. Advent's about the waiting. And sometimes waiting, you know, when you think about waiting, it can be a, 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 an exciting thing, like the anticipation, you know, like a little kid waiting. And sometimes waiting just feels like agony and despair. It's waiting for the news. And Advent, if we take it seriously, is the reminder of a time when the earth 2,000 years ago was filled with both of these experiences, anticipation and agony, all at the same time. And Advent is a reminder that Jesus wants to meet you there in whatever it is you're going through, wherever you find yourself in these days before God shows up. So just take a moment to reflect on this as we watch this right here. So it's in just such a mix of agony anticipation where the Christmas story picks up. And out of nowhere, in in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, comes the story of an angel who appears to a young girl. Now, young Jewish girls back in, in this de- that day were generally offered in marriage, sometimes as early as the age of 14, which, but uh, that, was the, that was the custom. And uh, so, you know, thinking late junior high, early high school, uh, maybe ninth grade, many Jewish girls were offered in marriage. And in the middle of this people who were just paralyzed in the grip of, of despair and doubt and fatalism, how long is this going to go on? At this moment in human history, is when an angel appears to this girl. So Mary could have been anywhere from 14 to 17 years old, somewhere in there most likely. And he says this. He says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. Then notice what else he says, he adds at the end. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So right in the middle of this cultural turmoil, an angel appears, not to some great military general or something like that, or to a politician who's very influential, not to a super well-respected religious priest, but to this young teenage Jewish girl. And the angel says, Mary, 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 I got some news for you. Right? You're going to have a baby, and this baby's going to be the son of the Most High, and his kingdom's going to go on forever and ever and ever. Now, I'm imagining that Mary is a very practical girl. 
Um, she took that class in junior high biology with all the diagrams, and, and she says, yeah, but, you know, there's some stuff that hasn't happened here yet. And, and, you know, she's got some basic questions that any intelligent person would have. Mr. Angel, how exactly does this make any sense? And the angel says to her, oh, well, Mary, it's simple. You're going to get pregnant by the Spirit of God. And Mary's like, okay, that clears it up because that's something that happens. Um, and then there's several translations of how their, their interaction ends in verse 38. I love one of the translations I came across of what Mary says next. She says, it said, Lord, here I am, the Lord's servant. Let's get on with it. That's so great. That's so great. So, okay, let me get this straight. So I'm going to have a baby. Baby's going to rule forever and ever. I'm going to be pregnant. The spirit's going to be involved here. Apparently there's no dude on the scene yet. Okay, then, I'm in. Let's get on with it. I love Mary's spirit here. This is the Christmas story. At humanity's lowest point, God shows up and says, I have not forgotten about my people. I've heard your cry, and I'm going to do something about it. Amen. You're going to have a baby. You're going to call him Jesus, and this Jesus is going to turn everything upside down, right? There's a new king on the scene. It's a, it's a different kind of king who's going to rule over a whole different kind of kingdom. So Mary has this news, and she's just bubbling over with excitement at this point. And it says that she runs to visit her cousin Elizabeth to tell her, and she just explodes in this song, this poem uh, that's it's called Mary's Song or the Magnificat from the Latin. Um, you'll find a copy of it in your bulletin that we gave you on the way in this morning. The Magnificat comes from the, uh, the Latin translation. It's the first word in the Latin translation. The Magnificat. Uh, now, this is, when you read this, you realize this is not some kind of timid, like, scared little girl, like sometimes we think of Mary. You read this and notice, like, the political, revolutionary kind of undertones of her poem. Years later, this manifesto, this anthem, it becomes sort of like the Magna Carta of the Christian church for decades uh, about what Jesus came to the world to do. And we've marked out on your, your sheet there all the places for you where she quotes from the Hebrew scriptures. Because this is a girl who knows her history. She, she knows what God has done in the past. And it starts in verse 46, and Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Notice the Savior language there, right? This God fights for Mary. God is not, this God is not the kind of like detached, sort of esoteric kind of spirit who's just floating on a cloud with a harp or something, you know, in heaven world. This is a God who is involved in human history, who's entering into human history. For her, the Savior is someone who's about to come on the scene and take care of the injustice happening around her. He's going to come into the middle of, of the world ruled by Herods and Caesars and empires and swords and taxes and bloodshed. He's fixing to enter in. This is a God who's not detached and just saying, just, it's okay, just wait around till you die, you get to go to heaven. He is about to put on flesh and blood and come alongside his creation. He said, she sings, for he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Here Mary is, is recognizing what a God of, of grace this must be because she's saying, look, there's, there's no natural reason for you to choose me after everybody else. I'm just a lowly person. There was nothing about Mary that would make her 
especially special in the eyes of people. Yes, she was a righteous girl, but so were many girls at her age. She's obviously a godly girl, but Mary is saying, you couldn't have chosen me because of my education. You didn't choose me because of my background. You didn't choose me because of my parents or because of my high standing or something. And she's praising God here because he chose her despite all the things that would make the rest of the world overlook her. I love this. Because here is a girl, a person of no great natural importance, we wouldn't say. And this girl is God's plan A. This girl's his first choice. We don't have like, well, the, you know, the great general, he didn't work out, so I had to go to Mary. No, this is God's plan A. And how many of us, how many of you need to be reminded this morning that you are not God's last resort? Amen. You're not. You're his first choice to do great things. You are his first choice to do great things. What, what is he looking for? He's looking for somebody who will respond, God, here I am. Let's get on with it. That's what he's looking for. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. That's a quote from the Psalms. She's just quoting all of these places from her people's history. She's really connected with her, her heritage. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. It's another quote from the Psalms. Here's where it really I like this is where it kind of starts to get punchy. She gets a little, she starts to get a little subversive. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Mary is saying here, God is going to deal with the evil that seems to be in in control of things. This empire, it's going down, right? This empire is going down. I mean, this is, this is strong revolutionary charged language here. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. She's saying those who have been stepped on are going to be stepped on no longer. This is dangerous language for a Jewish person living in occupied territory. This church, uh, the the Christian church, has been singing this hymn for 2,000 years. And often, especially in areas where the church is very persecuted, where it is very oppressed, they've been singing this. Are are you starting to understand? Well, I, I was reading that during the 1980s when Guatemala was ruled by dictators, they outlawed any public reading of the Magnificat because of its revolutionary undertones. Isn't that amazing? He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Now, when she uses this phrase rich, it's not a condemnation of wealth. It's a condemnation, think about her day. It's a condemnation of those who exploit, those who manipulate and control other people so that they can have more while others have less. She says that that kind of greed and manipulation and control, God's not going to put up with it. God is always, God's always on the side of the oppressed. In verse 54, he has come to the aid of his child Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So God has not forgotten. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. There's a, a writer, historian, Thomas Cahill. Uh, he describes this anthem like this. He says, Mary speaks her Magnificat, the most muscular poem of celebration in all of ancient literature. That's so awesome. Well, I think so. <laughs> okay. 
this, this young girl saying, listen, I've seen, I'm living under the largest kingdom in the world, this empire that stretches from England to India, uh, that crushes everything in its path. Caesar, no big deal. He's nothing compared to what God can do, Amen. right? Where Mary lived, it said that Herod was probably, uh, Herod was the most powerful person definitely where she lived. And it said that Herod it was possibly one of the most richest one of the richest men who ever lived in history, the single richest men who ever lived. And this young high school Jewish girl says, Herod, please, not a big deal. If God is involved, global superpower that's firmly entrenched in our ancient ancestral land, not a big deal if God is involved. They're no match for God's strength. Amen? This is defiant, revolutionary statement. Of, of a God who, who has watched his people be harassed long enough, and he's about to bring hope into the world. The Christmas story is, it's a story of, it's a story of history. It's a story grounded in real life history. This is not a magical fable that we tell. It's a story of people who were really oppressed, abused, and marginalized. And it's the story of a God who says, this will not go on forever. And God shows up in human history and says, enough. For these first Christians, Christmas was not just the magical little tale that you, you tell your kids as you're tucking them into bed before you run off and go wrap their presents. Christmas is good news in the nick of time life-saving news, because it was a God saying a new kind of kingdom is coming on the scene. Notice this description from Cahill. He says this, Mary's humility in this poem is hardly the humility of the meek and unassuming. This is a larger-than-life song of triumph, thanking God for righting all wrongs by making a definitive choice in favor of the powerless over the powerful. And I love this next part. He says, nobody knows it yet, but the poor, the hungry, and the humiliated have won. And this unknown 14-year-old girl is their unexpected representative. So great. From Mary's perspective, this news to her means, yeah, I know Herod is ruling the world. I know, it, who, I know what it looks like. I know what it says on the news. I know Caesar's ruling his empire. But in my womb, I've got a baby, right? Amen. And his kingdom is going to go on forever. And, and forever. And his kingdom is going to go on forever and forever and forever, and I'm the Lord's servant, so let's get on with it. I just picture her having a little bit of, a little bit of swagger, right? A little pregnant swagger. You know what that is. It's cool. It's a beautiful thing. Amen. By the way, just a historical footnote, Herod's kingdom is a pile of rocks today, right? The Caesars, they're all dead. Uh, it's nothing but a bunch of histories, uh, pictures in history books. Uh, so their temples are all in ruins. You can go visit them, but they're all in ruins. But the kingdom of that baby Jesus Christ is still expanding all over the earth. Amen? So apparently, Mary was onto something. Apparently, she's onto something. Somehow, by divine revelation, this young girl foresees a different kind of kingdom that's being birthed inside of her. It's a different kind of way to live. And, and, and we still today live in a society that tells us that the way of the world, the natural way of things, the way to get ahead is through power and control. 
Now, we're not being slaughtered in the streets, but it's the same message. It's the same way you measure success. Power and control, being the strong one, being the victor, making sure you're making other people the victims. Only by having enough might or money will you find happiness. And every Christmas, we are reminded as Christians to celebrate a different kind of kingdom with a different kind of king who offers up a, us a different, kind of, a different way to live. It's a different gospel. And, and it's a message that is easy to get lost in, in you know, all the trappings and the noise of our culture, which is why we have to continually remind ourselves so that we can reflect to the world what that message really is, that it's not about accumulation, it's about generosity. It's not about power, it's about serving, right? It's not about controlling people, it's about loving them. It's not about trying to be God, it's, tr- it's, about, trying to su- it's about submitting to the God who made everything. Amen. It's not about running from your past or running from your failures, it is about allowing this God to forgive you and cleanse you and free you from your past and give you a new life. I believe that God has a, a better plan than for, for you than, than you merely coping with despair. I think Christmas is about freedom. And I think the Spirit already started moving this morning on some folks. Because some of us need to move beyond just the daily coping to freedom to freedom, liberation, salvation. Until we get this, this, this whole season is just an exercise in missing the point. And, and Mary recognizes this miraculously. Something within her says, tomorrow will not be the same as today. Everything is different. The waiting is over. Salvation is born. Let's get on with it. Amen. So Christmas is not a story about a God who forgets or doesn't care when His people don't have enough to live on or are facing persecution. It's a story of a God who who actually comes alongside of us. And he, he loves his people, everyday people. He uses everyday people. And he comes into our lives and, and we find out he's never left us. He says, I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten you. And is there anybody here this morning that just needs to be reminded this morning, that Herod doesn't have the last word. That Caesar doesn't have the last word. The bank doesn't have the last word. The doctor doesn't have the last word. He's super smart. She's super smart, but they don't have the last word, right? The, the, The experts and the fair weather friends and the lawyers and the company who's making cutbacks and layoffs, they don't have the last word over you. None of them have the last word. God has the last word. And maybe there's somebody you're here with. Maybe there's somebody beside you and they just need to hear you simply say to them, hey, hey, I've seen the end of the story. I've seen the end of the story. It's not over yet. We're gonna make it. We're gonna be okay because there's a baby being born. And he's the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And he's the creator of all. He's the savior of all. He's going to reconcile all things and all people back to God and make all the wrongs right. He's going to redeem all the pain and heal all the wounds. Do we trust that? Amen. Maybe there's some of you who, you know, you're inching towards what 
a lot of people in Israel were feeling in that day. That's just that, you this sense of fatalism, like it's just always going to be like this. Tomorrow is going to be the same as today, and the day after that will be just like today. And, and it's not true. It's not true. And, and maybe you just need to pause and hear the Holy Spirit speaking that to you this morning. And let Mary's song be your song. My soul magnifies the Lord because he has done great things. He will continue to do great things, and his mercy is for me. Little old me. Not because of anything remarkable that you've done, but just because that's just who he is. Here at Generations, we, we believe our only hope is the God who keeps showing up and rescuing us. He rescues us, each of us, from our own darkness, our own personal demons and the destruction and the brokenness within us. But then we also believe that he is at work in the world around us. And we believe that Jesus is our only hope. And so what we're learning is that our cry for God to show up, in this cry, we're learning that actually God has been there all along. You really don't have to wait for him to show up. He's been there all along. And so we believe that Herod and Caesar do not have the last word in human history, but God does. Amen? And we believe we've seen the end of the story, and we're going to be okay. Hallelujah. Will you pray with me this morning? Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we praise you in this third Sunday of Advent. Lord, prepare our hearts for the celebration of the coming of Jesus. Jesus, come and save us. Come and save us from our sins. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our, our despair, our wrong way of thinking, our illusions and our delusions. Save us from our selfishness and our pride, Lord God. Save us from all the things, even the things that we don't even have enough sense to know that we need saving from. Jesus, give us grace. Give us grace. Give us grace. Crucify that, that cynic, that voice of the cynic in us that says tomorrow will be the same as today. Give us a revelation like that teenage Jewish girl had that everything is about to change because you are arriving on the scene to save us. Hallelujah. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there's hatred, let us so love. Where there is injury, let us so pardon. Where there is doubt, may we be instruments of faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, may we sow joy. Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive it is in pardoning others that we are pardoned. And it's in dying, dying to the flesh, dying to despair, that we are born to new life. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, for the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask all this. Amen and amen, amen. Hallelujah. Would you stand to your feet this morning as our prayer partners are coming forward? If there's anything at all you need prayer for this morning, whatever it is, there's nothing too big, there's nothing too trivial. The God of the universe came to us in the form of a baby about yay big 
So he's into little things too. So come and let these people pray in faith for you, with you, whatever's going on in your life. If you want to say yes to Jesus today for the first time or for the second time or the third time, maybe you've been far from God and you just know it's time to come home. I just need to say yes to Jesus. Come on and let them pray with you. They'll pray that prayer with you. Help you get you started on that road. Hallelujah. Amen. And now let me speak a word of blessing to us all. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance upon you and grant you joy and peace and grace in this Christmas season. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.